perhaps you are worshiping with us uh, maybe for the very first time today. We're glad that you are here, uh, honored that you are here, and uh, we'll trust that the Lord will continue to minister his grace and his kindness uh, to you. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. God is, uh, you know, we can easily take things, we can take a lot for granted, let's just be honest. But I was thinking just this last week, God is just so good and kind and gracious to us as a church, as his people, that he has given us his word. If he did not do that, we would not know him. We could not know him. If God does not take the initiative to reveal himself and his character to us, none of us would have any hope at all. And so every time we open up God's word, we, we ought to think, we ought to praise God that he has been so kind. It's another example of the fact that our God is for us. He's not against us. He delights uh, in us as we turn our attention to him, and especially as we get to know him in his word, because these are not just idle words. This is not even part of the sermon. This is just free information for all of you. <laughs> I, I'm just getting going here. Uh, but th- these, are, these are not just idle words, Moses says. This is your life. And so this is our life here, and we find our life here as we turn our attention to God's Word. So it's a great privilege to be able to open up God's Word and expound that uh, for us together. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark. We continue in our series here, Mark chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 31 through 35, Mark chapter 3. If you're able to, please stand. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother? And my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would deal graciously and continue to deal graciously with us this morning. Lord, we want to be, we want to keep your word, but, but so often we fail. We, we want to desire you and only you, but we're easily distracted by so many other things, so many things of this earthly life. So as the psalmist prays, Lord, we pray, open our eyes this morning that we would see wonderful things in your law. Your testimonies are our delight. They are our counselors. So speak to us this morning, Lord, for we are listening. So please speak, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Afshin Ziafat is a pastor just outside of Dallas, Texas. He was born to 
Iranian parents lived for a few years in Tehran, and then his family eventually moved back to Texas. His family was a devout Iranian Muslim family. From a very early age, he learned the five pillars of Islam. He spoke Farsi, began to learn English only because a tutor would come to the house every day. In the second grade, this English tutor gave young Afshin a copy of the New Testament and said, this is the most important book you're ever going to read, even though you can't understand it now, one day you will. And so Afshin began to read that New Testament under the covers, the flashlight, hiding it from his family, particularly from his dad. Several, several years later, towards the end of high school, through really a series of divinely inspired events, Afshin became a Christian. But he struggled to know what to say to his parents, particularly his dad. He struggled to know even how to do that. And he writes this, it so happened that one day my dad found out. He'd seen my Bible, and he'd also seen other evidences in my life. He sat me down and said, son, what's going on? There's something different about you. I said, dad, I'm, I'm a Christian. He said, no, you're not, young man. You're a Muslim, and you'll always be a Muslim. And I said, dad, the Bible says that if I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, then, then I'm a Christian. And I do. My dad said, Afshin, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. He continues and he writes this, I didn't want to lose the relationship with my dad. So even I was surprised when I opened my mouth and said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. And if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. My father, he writes, disowned me on the spot. I had to lose my father to follow Christ. But I learned firsthand that when you lose your life, you actually find it. It's, it's hard to hear, isn't it? On one level. There's a, there's a weightiness to that. And for most of us here, I think Afshin's experience is, is maybe even largely foreign to us. You can think about when you became a Christian, no doubt your life began to change in perhaps some very big ways, but probably in a, in a whole bunch of maybe smaller ways. But it, it probably didn't involve a parent disowning you on the spot. It probably didn't involve a family member instantaneously turning their back on you, acting as if you were never even born, behaving as if you were dead. But I know that some of you here know all too well the, the rift that has come between you and your immediate family, your physical family, simply because you are a Christian. You, you feel that distance. You, you, you know what it's like to, to be looked at as, as being odd, as, as being an outsider. You, you face potentially the ridicule or maybe even the outright ostracism, simply because, well, now you're a Christian. Now you're a disciple of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, you're now odd to the people that know you best, and the people that perhaps you love the most. These sorts of situations raise lots of different questions for us, I think, if we're honest. 
How are we to think about our immediate families? How are we to think biblically about our nuclear family, our physical family? Who is my real family now? Who's the real family of Jesus? And who is my true family now that I actually belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords? Who's my real family? Now, if you're just joining us this morning, perhaps you're here for the first time, we're uh, embarking here in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we jumped quite a bit ahead to the end of the book, Mark chapter 16. We looked at uh, Mark's account of the resurrection. The good news is that Jesus is still alive. He's still on the move. He's still ruling and reigning in our world, in our church. He's just as alive this week as he was last week. And so as we have looked at the gospel of Mark, particularly in Mark chapter 2 and 3, we have seen week in and week out this kind of this running slideshow of Jesus, haven't we? Mark just gives us one scene after the next. Oftentimes there's not a lot of commentary. I fill that in. But there's, he just keeps going from one scene to the next. And as we've been tracking here in Mark chapter 2 and 3, the, the scenes continue to roll. And what we've been seeing is that the opposition to Jesus The conflict has been growing. There's been mounting opposition, in fact. Yes, there's been conflict for Jesus with the scribes, with the religious leaders, the ruling religious elites of the day. We're probably not all that surprised by that, though, right? Jesus has made some pretty bold claims about who he is, about who they are, and about who really needs to do the changing. There's also been growing tension with the crowds, many of the, many in the crowd have been really pressing in on Jesus. They've been pressuring him. They've been very fascinated by him. They've, they've been very curious and inquisitive. Some of them, for better reasons than others, some have not so great reasons for being really interested in Jesus. None of that probably surprises us. What I think does surprise us is that Jesus is facing turmoil and strife with his own family, with the people that know him the best and whom he loves the most. I mean, it appears that Jesus can't even catch a break, not even with his own family. It appears that for Jesus, when it, well, when it rains conflict, it seems to pour conflict, doesn't it? Family conflict or, or some bit of family strife I think without a doubt, is, is the most difficult for us to navigate because the stakes are so high, the emotions are so high, it affects the people that you love the most, and on a very practical note, it makes birthday parties pretty awkward. Trouble at the office, trouble on the job site, that's one thing. It's important. Conflict maybe with with kids at school or with the homeowners association or with your health club, that's the second thing. That's not easy. But when trouble comes home with the people in your home, that's where it can be almost unbearable, can, can be crushing. And in my experience, you, you can handle number one and number two much better if you don't have to worry about number three. But if there's trouble at home, number one and number two, well, it affects everything. So there is hope here in this text, though, and I I want you to see that. In the the midst of a very sticky family situation here, 
Jesus actually offers hope. He does that by, by giving us and reminding us, really, of two surprising truths about family. And we want to look at those together this morning. Let me just set the scene for us. Our text here is really the continuation of uh, what Jesus or what Mark brings to us here in verses 20 and 21. If you remember, there the family of Jesus is seeking to seize him. And remember that word means basically to arrest him, to forcibly remove him from that scene. They, they didn't think Jesus could take care of his needs. They, they, they didn't know, they, they thought Jesus was crazy. At the very least, he was mentally not well. He was not stable. And so the family kind of does that first century family intervention. Now that leads to what we read here in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, immediately, we're told here that the family of Jesus stands where? Outside. Outside. Now, you might think that Mark is just giving us some helpful uh, geographic descriptions of the location and where everybody is. Now, he is doing that, but he's actually up to something far more important. Mark actually tells us here who's in and who's out. In other words... There are insiders with Jesus, and there are outsiders with Jesus. Now, we don't really like to use that kind of language today. We don't really like to even hear that language today. I think, out of the goodness of our hearts, we all just want to think that, well, isn't everybody an insider at some point? I mean, if, as long as you, you, you sincerely at least are curious about Jesus, doesn't that kind of make you an insider? You kind of got a fast track to him? Yet Jesus operated with, with these two categories, brothers and sisters. Those that truly knew him, truly understood his mission, truly understood that he was the king of kings and lord of lords and gave up everything to follow him, and those that were fascinated by him, and those that were curious, and yes, those that had questions, but their hearts were not surrendered. And what's surprising here is that his physical family, his mom, his sister, brothers, they're not on the inside. They're on the outside. They're standing outside of him. In other words, they're separated from him. And and, and the detail that Mark gives us here is that they are seeking him. And that word there is is a strong word. They're seeking him. That, that's not the family standing outside and saying, hey, Jesus, we're just wondering here. We got dessert uh, coming up here, 8 o'clock. You think you're going to swing by at that point? That's not what they're saying. That word there actually means similar to the word seizing. They want to seize and seek him. They are, they are not convinced of who he is at this point. In fact, they are in opposition to him and to his ministry. They don't think things are going well with Jesus, and so they want to intervene So Jesus, his immediate family is on the outside while you have some folks, some in the crowd, including his disciples, who are where? They're on the inside. So so you notice the contrast here. The blood relatives of Jesus on the outside. In verse 32, you have a crowd that was sitting around him. Verse 34, he looked about at those who were around him, sitting around him. You've got disciples, folks, on the inside. 
Mark, Mark wants us to get this and pay attention to this church. There really are only two categories of people, and we see them right here. This morning, you are either standing apart, outside, or you are sitting inside with Jesus. Now, I think at this point, we read this and we think, well, we would expect Jesus being who he is, that once he's notified that his mom, his brothers, they're outside, that he would invite them in. I mean, isn't that what you and I would do? I mean, if you see your mom standing, knocking at the door, you wave to her, and that's all you do, you're going to hear about that, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't invite them in. He doesn't welcome them in. Jesus' family remains on the outside, separated from him, apart from him. And Jesus doesn't do that to be cruel or mean towards his family. We know how deeply sensitive Jesus was to his Well, to his own blood relatives, to his own family. We know how much he loved his family and cared for them. Jesus upheld the fifth commandment. We read in in an interesting case in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, that this is when Jesus was 12 years old. If you remember the scene, he's at the temple and his parents think he's gone on ahead. And so they leave. They leave him at the temple. He's there for three days and his parents can't find him. Yet Jesus is at the temple there. But when they finally do reunite, it's interesting, Luke says that Jesus, the Son of God, submitted to his earthly parents, and Mary treasured all these things in her heart. I think every parent treasures the time when their kids submit. We're honest. But Jesus, Jesus submitted himself to his earthly parents. Obviously, he cared about them. Jesus showed incredible care and compassion for his mom, uh, John chapter 19, at his crucifixion, in his moment, hour of greatest human need, yet he speaks, he speaks directly to her, if you remember. Nobody loved families. Nobody loved children more than Jesus. He invited them all the time throughout the gospel. Mark 10, let the little children come to me. I mean, Jesus, Jesus loved his family better than any of us could ever love our families. He, he loved his own family deeper and more abiding. In fact, Jesus loved his family perfectly all the time. On one level, I, I think it, it'd be really hard, wouldn't it, to have Jesus as your son or brother? I mean, he's always perfect. It it really never is his fault. So Jesus is is not being mean here, but he does mean to make a very important truth, and this is what we need to understand, a very important truth about family. Here it is, truth number one. Family is a gift, but it's not the ultimate gift. Family is a wonderful blessing, but it's not the ultimate blessing. So Jesus here is is really making the same decision that he would advise his disciples to make. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me 
is not worthy of me. Those are hard words. Hard words, I think, to hear. It was maybe even shocking. It was incredibly shocking for Jesus to say that in the first century, and I think perhaps it's no less shocking in our day. We do not expect Jesus to put family loyalties into second place. So you might hear that and think, man, that is, that is unkind. I can't believe Jesus would get off saying that. How does, he, how does he get off saying that? And we feel that tension, and we ought to feel that tension. There, there's a weightiness. There's a, there's a gravitas to what Jesus is saying here. And again, he's not being difficult. He's not trying to pick a fight. Family is of great importance. But what Jesus makes clear here is that our immediate families do not have priority over our commitments to God, to His will, and to God's family. Family is a gift, but it's not the ultimate gift. And so, church, I think, I think we can apply this in, in two main ways here. First, your family ties cannot save you. Your family ties cannot save your soul. Again, families, family ties are important, but they're not ultimate in Jesus' kingdom. You, you are not part of the inner circle of Jesus simply because you're, you're close to him or even, as the case may be here, that you're a blood relative of him. Just think about this. If playing the family card didn't work for Mary, his mom, she's still on the outside at this point, do you think that's going to work for you? It's not. Jesus doesn't give any special spiritual favors to his own blood relatives, to his own family, and you and I don't get any special spiritual favors because of our parents or because of our immediate family either. The only thing that matters is whether or not you know Jesus. You, you've heard it said, Maybe even this last week. I actually heard this at this last week. You're familiar with the expression. You know, it's life is all about who you know. And yeah, that there's truth to that. Actually, like if uh, if you want tickets to a, a sporting event and it's sold out, but you know somebody, somebody important who can pull some strings, get you tickets. Well, that's great. You get to go to the game. It's it's all about who you know. You probably even get a better parking spot. It's great. It's all about who you know. Or maybe there's a show that you want to see. Or Maybe because you, you know a doctor, you, can, you don't have to wait in line or whatever the case may be. So we, we see this, yeah, there, it sure helps to, to know certain people, doesn't it? You know, on Judgment Day, it absolutely does matter who you know. You need to know Jesus. The only connection that matters on that day is your connection to Christ not to your relatives, not to your family. Doesn't doesn't matter who you spent a whole lot of time with on this earth. Doesn't matter who your relatives may be. It doesn't matter on, on that day who your immediate family is because your family ties cannot save you. But Jesus can and Jesus will. So you need to turn to him and you'll find eternal life. Family is a gift but it's not the ultimate gift. Here's the second application. In the kingdom of God, your physical family doesn't come first. 
In Jesus' kingdom, as he has set this up, our physical families, our immediate families, do not come first. The family cannot take the place of God. Now, your physical family obviously means something, means something important. But when you put your faith in Jesus, you actually have a stronger relational bond with other brothers and sisters uh, precisely because you share Christ. And uh, I'm speaking particularly here, if, if uh, you have non-Christian family members and friends, you, you know what that's like. That's why if you meet another Christian, maybe from another country, you don't speak the same language, you don't share the same food or customs, you might not even barely understand each other, but within just mere minutes of that conversation, you feel a kinship towards them. There, there's, there's something deep and, and abiding and beautiful that's taking place. You're, this is my brother. This is my sister. Because you're going to be spending eternity with that person. And again, those of you with perhaps non-Christian family members and friends, you know what this is like. You may be on the outside of your physical family because you know Jesus. People that you've known for decades. You may be on the outside with them, but then you come to a, a home group, maybe at this church, and, and within a matter of just a couple months, perhaps, you, you feel that deep kinship and that bond because you share Christ. And you'll be sharing Christ and rejoicing in Christ for all eternity. Hear what I'm saying here, brothers and sisters. Jesus is not saying, come, follow me, take up your cross, and forget all about your earthly family. Neglect your earthly family. He's not saying that at all. What he's actually saying is, when you begin to follow me as my disciple, you'll actually begin to love your immediate family, to love your physical family even more, deeper, better, in more godly ways, because now you have the right priority. Now you have the right order. So in the kingdom of God, our physical families, they don't come first. Now this cuts another way for us as well. And I think especially for us, here we are at a church that takes doctrine seriously. We take families seriously. We, we love families. We emphasize godly relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children. All of this is, is wonderful. And we certainly make no apologies for that. But the danger is that we here can elevate our physical families to a point that Jesus doesn't, to the point of idolatry. I mean, family can be an idol without even really thinking about it. It's very, very subtle. I know none of us wake up in the morning and say, you know what, today, today I'm going to worship my kids. I'm going to worship their schedules, I'm going to worship their activities. No, we don't, we don't say that. But then maybe a month or two or three goes by, and you kind of look back and you think, that, that's probably what that feels like. I know none of us wake up this morning and say, you know what, today, today I'm going to live for the approval of my husband. Or today I'm going to live for the approval of my wife, and so if she actually acknowledges me, well, then I'm going to have a great day, but if she doesn't, all hope is lost despair. Or today I'm going to live for the approval of my, my mother or my mother-in-law. I know we don't say things like that, but it doesn't mean that we still don't struggle 
And it doesn't mean that we don't put so much of our identity sometimes in our family that it can only lead to disappointment and further frustration. Brothers and sisters, that's what idols do. They woo us, they draw us in, they promise joy and happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment and never deliver. Never. So family is a wonderful gift, but it's a terrible idol. If we only have uh, one category for how we think about our family, if, if, if everything is just through the, through the lens of how will this impact my immediate family, any obligations or commitments or things that I'm thinking about doing, or what's the impact, what's, what's going to be the toll on immediate family, then, then, then we're actually missing it. Because our immediate family cannot provide ultimate meaning and purpose. God can. And he promises to do exactly that. So if your identity is perhaps wrapped up in your family or perhaps too much in your family, you, you, will, you are going to be, well, you're going to let them down. You're going to disappoint them. And they're going to disappoint you and they're going to let you down as well. So we need to think carefully about how we are thinking about our immediate family. Parents, it's a challenge for you and I almost didn't want to put this in the sermon because it's far too convicting for me. But parents, you do your children no favors if you love them in such a way that makes them think you love them more than you love God. No, we're, yes, care for your kids, spend time with them, of course. But your love for Jesus is always to be first. It has to be first. Otherwise, parenting goes off the rails really, really quickly. Truth number one, family is a gift, but it's not the ultimate gift. Here's truth number two that Jesus gives to us this morning. Anyone can be part of God's family. Somebody say amen. Anyone and everyone can be part of God's family, the family of God. Verses 33 through 35, and he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The family of God is open to Absolutely everyone. That's great news. That's the real encouragement here. It does not matter who your parents are. It doesn't depend on if your grandparents like physically built the church. It doesn't matter how many hours you were dragged to church and spent at church. No. Family of God is open to anyone. That means it's open to people like us. It's open to the very rich and the destitute and poor. It's open to young children. It's open to much older men and women. It's open to every kind of sinner, as we've seen here in Mark, even, yes, even the hated tax collectors. The family family of God is open to anyone. Here's the qualification that Jesus brings, verse 35, whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God. Now, Jesus is not saying here that you must earn your salvation by doing God's will, so if 
you are in Christ this morning, well, you're doing God's will, and the way you stay in God's family is to continue to do God's will. This is, this is not a treatise here on justification by faith alone. What Jesus is saying here is simply this. God's family is open to anyone who will accept me on my terms. Anyone who accepts Jesus on his terms, welcome to God's family. And in the context of Mark's gospel, doing God's will means responding to Jesus' call right at the beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, to repent and believe the good news, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what Mark is saying is anyone who does that, anyone who repents and believes in the gospel, you can be part of God's family. I grew up in a Baptist church, and so it seemed like with, a, with somewhat alarming regularity, we would sing that old hymn, Trust and Obey. I mean, you know what that, how that goes, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be miserable in Jesus. No, to be happy, actually. That word is blessed in Jesus, then to trust and obey. That's, that's essentially what, what Mark is saying here. That's how you get in. Now, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, I, I heard different things. I thought doing good deeds, actually, that's how you get into God's family. You do enough good deeds, he lets you in, and then you've got to just keep doing good deeds to, to make sure that you stay in. No. Maybe you also heard, I heard this just, just recently, that, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And so, in order to get in God's family, like, you've got to help yourself. You've got to keep kind of helping yourself. God will kind of fill in the gaps, but that's how you get into God's family. That's how you stay into God's family. No, that's not true either. The good news of the gospel is that God actually saves those who can't help themselves. But yet we still try. That's the beauty of the gospel. Perhaps you're here and you thought, wait a minute, the God's family, the kingdom of God, that's, that must be open to the people who, who just really love church a lot. And who serve in areas where nobody else wants to serve and who are generally kind and nice people and who bring really good food to potluck. No, that's not it either. The kingdom of God where Jesus is now ruling and reigning, in fact, God's family, it's based on obedience to God's word, faithfulness to him. All those who repent and believe in the gospel, trust in Jesus and yes, obey, not because of any family background or ethnic or uh, cultural identities. Jesus modeled doing God's will perfectly, like nobody else could or ever will. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus sweat drops of blood, remember the prayer that Jesus prayed. Heavenly Father, not my will, not my will, but, but yours be done. That is the gutsiest prayer in all of Scripture. Not my will, but yours be done. And so what happened there? On the cross, Jesus became the ultimate outsider so that people like us could be eternal insiders with him. On the cross, Jesus was rejected by God, his Father, so that we would be welcomed and accepted 
by him. So the man or the woman, the boy or girl who does the will of God, that's whom Jesus says, he's my brother, she's my sister. Those who think that they're in God's family sort of by some sort of vote or by, because of parents or because of their family, those who oftentimes think that they're automatically in, well, they're, they're not. They're actually outsiders. But those that know that they're outsiders and know that the only way they can get anywhere near the family of God is because of God's great grace and kindness given to them in Christ, those are the people that are recipients of God's salvation. Their insight. That's the scandal of God's grace. That's the, the glory of God's grace. The insiders, right here, the, the religious leaders, the physical heirs of Abraham, some very religious spiritual people, those insiders become outsiders. And the outsiders, Gentiles, tax collectors, sinners, insert your name. We, we become insiders and recipients of God's salvation. That's all part of the upside-down kingdom that Mark is really introducing to us here. We're going to look at, look at that more in the weeks ahead. But what a profoundly liberating truth. The family of God is open to anyone. And so then we begin to see, brothers and sisters, that th- this gospel then that has worked in our hearts as, as God rescues and redeems us. We become part of his family. We're now in God's family. That same gospel worked in us then is worked out of us and it changes our relationships with each other. We now have a new spiritual family. That's that's what the gospel does. It actually changes our relationships with each other. You, You actually begin to care about the person sitting next to you. They're not your blood relative. You may not even have a whole lot in common with them, except for Christ. And so you actually begin to care. So the person sitting next to you, perhaps right here on a Sunday morning, or maybe in your home group, you are burdened by their burdens. You begin to care about, you begin to pray for them. Maybe for the first time in your life, or first time in a long time, that the, the trials that they're going through, in a, in a way, they become your trials, and you're interceding before the Lord for them. You, they matter to you. The local church, right here, this is where we find our true family, especially when our physical, immediate family fails and falls short. Think of Ashvin. He no longer had a family to turn to, a physical family. He was rejected, disowned. And so part of the Lord's grace for him was he he began to discover a a new family, a spiritual family, the family of God with brothers and sisters in a local church who would walk with him and his family, and that's exactly what has happened. You know, a local church like ours, it's true of every local church. Ours is no different. But the truth is, every one of us here are outsiders, at least at one point we were, nobody here was born a Christian. You actually only become a Christian and a member of God's family by divine adoption, Romans chapter 8. So we were at one point all outsiders to God's family by natural birth 
And we become insiders, how? Only by God's grace and the miracle of spiritual new birth and new life in Christ. And so even as we gather from week in and week out, what are we here? I mean, we're all a bunch of, of, of gospel refugees, gospel transplants, really. People who some have been maybe rejected by their immediate family, but all of us in one way or another separated from perhaps family or friends or people groups that we once knew. I think one of the challenges, and perhaps this hits very close to home for some of you here, that you might walk into a church like ours and see, man, there's all these intact families, there's a bunch of families. Well, I don't, I don't really fit. I don't really belong because that's not the season of life I'm in or that's not, that's not how God has worked. That's not who I am. And so I think of widows and widowers. Who becomes your family when your spouse passes away? We do. Brothers and sisters in, in a local church like that, that's, that's who your family is. You, you belong here. I think of single parents who heroically doing life. Perhaps one of, some of you here have a, have a spouse who's not a believer, and so there is a, a disconnect there, and yet you, you need you need family around you. I think of those who are single here or, or perhaps recovering addicts or perhaps you're married but, but without children or, or maybe there are some disabilities or special needs. I mean, there's a whole range of things that we could say, you know what, I don't really fit. I'm not sure I belong anywhere. You belong here. This may be the only place on earth, but you belong here. The church is the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And yes, we're different. We have different tastes. We have different abilities and so on and so forth. But the bond that we share because we share Christ, that will last for all eternity. That's far greater than any genetic or ethnic or physical ties. And that's why we want to give ourselves to strengthening those bonds. That's our, really, it's a sacred responsibility that we all have. That's not just my job or Paul's job or Drew's job. That's all of us together to say, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. This is my family. So how can I love them better this week? How, how, can, I pray, how can I bear their burdens? There's something beautiful that happens when that happens in a local church. God's family is open to anyone who will take Jesus at his word. Let me close with this. Many of us, and I say this in love, I mean, many of us here look like we kind of have it all together. Nice family, marriage intact, kids that generally are obedient. But the challenge is for us to consider the full force of what Jesus is saying here about the priority of spiritual relationships and, and a spiritual family. Remember, your, your physical family is a blessing. It's a gift from God, but it's not the ultimate. So it may be that, especially as parents, we, we need to consider the, the weightiness of what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't mean that 
everything's gone off the rails, but it may mean that the Lord is calling us to, to live differently this week than we did last week. That there may be areas of growth and change. Perhaps we have misplaced priorities. Perhaps we have misplaced hope. We're, we're hoping that our immediate family can deliver something that only God can do. It may be that you're here and in some small way that you can relate to Ashton because you do face that daily decision of do I please God or do I please my earthly family? Maybe you have parents who just do not get it. They do not understand your new life in Christ. And maybe that's been for years. Or, like I said, you, you have a, a spouse that doesn't share your faith in Christ. That is, that is hard. And Jesus has great compassion and kindness. I want you to be encouraged this morning. God has not abandoned you. And he certainly has not left you alone. There's a, a wonderful story, Mark chapter 10 Jesus is in a discussion with the rich young ruler. You're probably all familiar with that. Many of us are. They're talking about eternal life. They're talking about some really, really important things. And you've got this ruler, and then the disciples are there. And uh, Peter, not surprisingly, is the one to speak up, kind of as the spokesperson for the disciples. And he just says, uh, Jesus, just a reminder, like we've left everything to follow you. Just, just a reminder, in case you didn't notice, there's nothing that we're, we don't have anything more to offer to you, Jesus. We're super committed to you. And Jesus says, Mark 10, 29, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children of land for my sake and for the gospel, get this, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and childrens and lands. Jesus understands that even if your physical family has disowned you because of your love for Christ, because you are following Christ, you will get a new family and you will be given what you have lost. Where, where does that happen? Right here. That's where that happens. In this local church. This is the place where all of us who were once outsiders and some of us who still may be outsiders to our own immediate family, we actually become insiders. We're part of God's family by His grace. And we walk alongside our brothers and sisters as we seek Jesus together. Jesus is not going to claim any of us because of our family background, because of our positions or power because of our relatives, because of who, who we knew on this earth. But he will always welcome into his family all those who believe in him, who trust in him, who put all of their faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, Have your way with us this morning. Lord, everything that we've looked at, certainly all of my feeble and sometimes weak words will have zero impact unless you soften our hearts, unless you 
cause us to see, unless you remove blinders from our eyes and a lot of spiritual earwax from our ears. God, have mercy on us. Lord, I, I do pray that perhaps one, one result of this text would be that, that we, this week, love you more, and that in loving you more and seeing you, Jesus, as our ultimate treasure and gift, that you would fill our hearts with an overwhelming, overwhelming love for our families. But I'll entrust that to you, Lord. So have your way with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.